1 Kings chapter uh, 21. I'm going to look at chapter 21 this evening. It's not a really long chapter, and, but before we get into chapter 21, I'm just going to recap chapter 20, but first let's go before the Lord. Heavenly Father, we um, thank you again for this place, Lord. You've been so faithful to us, Lord, you've always uh, have blessed us when we have gathered together, Lord. And we pray, Lord, for our hearts tonight that as we, as we read of these things, Lord, and Lord, that it wouldn't just be something that is interesting or something historical, but Father, may you reveal to us, Lord, some lessons from this tonight. And, and, and Lord, that we would leave change uh, and so have your way with us tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, if you remember, last week we looked at chapter 20, where Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, came uh, against uh, the northern ten tribes, otherwise known as Israel, or you might even see it uh, called Ephraim, because the largest tribe of the northern ten tribes was Ephraim. So whenever you see in the prophets where it talks about Israel or it talks about um, Ephraim, it's talking about that northern uh, ten tribes that had fallen into idolatry. And whenever it speaks of Judah, it's speaking of Judah and Benjamin and the southern two tribes. Okay, so just keep that in, in mind. So Ben-Hadad, this king of Assyria, which is to the north of Israel, uh, they come and uh, Ben-Hadad brings 32 other kings with him. No doubt these men were from other neighboring towns under his jurisdiction. They come down and they besiege Samaria. And the king of Syria says to Ahab, this wicked king who we've been looking at, he says, um, you know, your silver and your gold are mine, and your loveliest wives and children are mine. And Ahab, realizing that he's probably outnumbered and outgunned, he, he kind of caves into this and says, okay, you know, I'm your, I'm your servant, and come and take it, you know. And, um, and he comes back again with more messengers and demands even more, and, uh, and it creates this. Um, and then Ahab reaches out to the elders of Israel, and they kind of instill within him a little bit of confidence, and he rebuts the king of Syria, Ben-Hadad. And Ben-Hadad says, you know, I'm coming after you. And, um, and, and suddenly a prophet, uh, we don't know who this prophet is, if it was Elijah or if it was Elisha or some other prophet, the Bible would tell us, but it doesn't tell us who it is. So a prophet comes and basically tells King Ahab, this wicked king, tells him, don't worry, I'm going to deliver Syria into your hands. And that's certainly an encouragement. And so uh, they muster an army, and uh, they do. They uh, defeat the Syrians, and a prophet comes after this battle, after Israel is victorious. Now, in the back of your mind, always be thinking, why would God deliver Israel when they are in this wicked idolatry? Well, you're going to find out something about Ahab. You've probably already learned a little bit about him, but tonight we're going to learn a little bit more about this man. He wasn't, he, although he was wicked and worthy of judgment, there was something in him that, uh, there was some humility in him 
that God saw and it pleased the Lord. And we're going to see that that's going to actually work to his benefit later on, even though he's a wicked king. And, and that just reminds me of that verse where it says, uh, a bruised reed he will not break and a smoking flax he will not quench. Because even in the most wicked of people, when God sees a heart that is willing to bend and willing to, and, and there's something in them that, 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 that understands and, and, and bows their knee, however much that is, God will work with that. He'll work with that. And he wants to fan that flame and he wants to encourage whatever is there. And see, that's the way God is. You and I aren't like that. In the natural, when somebody has wronged us twice, maybe three times, we're like, you know what? You do it three times, you know, and I'm not going to let you do it again. And we have a very different outlook, but God has a very different outlook on people. And that really challenges me because in our world today, we're surrounded by difficulties and enemies. And it's important that we keep our hearts in a right place. And as I'm pointing those fingers at you, saying that, I, oh, wait, there's three on each hand pointing back at me, so I guess I need to listen to this too. And it's true. I, I need to listen to this. But God saw something in Ahab, and God wasn't just going to just pounce on this guy and just pound him into the dust because of his idolatry and his evil wife. God was going to have his way, and they ultimately would be condemned and judged, but God gave them, especially Ahab, he was of the two people, Ahab and Jezebel. Ahab, there was something, a little spark in him. But nonetheless, God gives them this victory over Syria, which is really unusual. And then a prophet comes to the king of Israel, to Ahab, and says, well, you better go strengthen yourself because they're going to come back next season. <laughs> they're going to come back. They're going to go back and look at their battle plans, and they're coming back because the, the, the Syrians said... Uh, about God, that, that God was the God of the hills. And therefore, they were stronger than we, but if we fight them in the plain, they won't have any chance. And so uh, they do certainly come back in the spring of the year, and Ben-Hadad uh, did that very thing, tried to get all of his chariots in the plain and overwhelm Israel, thinking that their God was just a God of the hills, but not of the God of the whole earth. By the way, that's the truth about God. He's the God of all the earth, not just the hills and the, the valleys and the plains. He's, uh, he's pretty much got it all covered, amen? <laughs> and so they are thinking that they're going to be victorious this time, and God tells them again that he is going to deliver them in, in his, in, into their hand, and certainly he does. And they have this battle at Aphek, and uh, a, a big wall falls on several thousand of the men, and Ben-Hadad flees into an inner chamber, and Ahab finally brings him out, and instead of extinguishing this man, which is what he should have done, what God wanted him to do, he doesn't do that. Instead, he tries to make a treaty with him, and God even says to him through a, a prophet, uh, he says to him, Thus says the Lord, Because you have let slip out of your hand a man whom I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. And so the king, notice, was sullen when he heard this and displeased and he came to Samaria. And so that's where we are going into this thing. But notice the, the humility of Ahab. You, you, you didn't see this kind of guy puffing out his chest and going, Well, well I'll prove him. 
you know, which is the, na- the nature of man, isn't it? When God says, I want you to do something, and you've been uh, spanked a little bit, or you've been uh, corrected, it either goes one of two ways. You're either going to get bitter, or you're going to get better. And if you get bitter, you're going to put out your chest and, and tell God that you're going to do, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do. And he goes, okay, see how that works for you. Or we can just submit to God, which is a very good thing. I would encourage you all, including myself, to do that. But let's read through chapter 21, then we'll come back and look at it. Notice what it says. So after, and it came to pass after these things. So clearly the things I just shared with you in chapter 20, a synopsis, after those things that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard which was in Jezreel, next to the place of Ahab, king of Samaria. So Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it is near next to my house, and for it I will give you a vineyard better than it. Or, if it seems good to you, I will give you its money, you know, its money's worth. And so... Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers to you. And so Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased. Notice this again. He, 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 a very interesting fellow, you know, this king. He, he seems to have a, a soft heart, and he's not just going to take vengeance. So I, I just got to bring that out. It's very interesting. Uh, so Ahab went into his house sullen and displeased because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed, and he turned away his face, and would eat no food. But Jezebel, but Jezebel, underline that, but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it pleases you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And then Jezebel's wife said to him, you now exercise authority over Israel. Arise, eat food and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. And she wrote letters in Ahab's name, sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. And she wrote in the letter saying, proclaim a fast and set Naboth with high honor among the people and seat two men, scoundrels before him to bear witness against him saying, you have blasphemed God and the king. And then take him out and stone him that he may die. And so the men of the city, the elders and the nobles, who were inhabitants of his city, did as Jezebel had, had sent to them, as it was written in the letters which she had sent to them. And they proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth with high honor among the people. Uh, Ed, can we just turn that down just a smidgen? The, the microphone just a little bit. Thanks. And two men, scoundrels, came in and sat before him. And the scoundrels witnessed against him, saying, Naboth, uh, against Naboth, in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth has blasphemed God and the king. And then they took him outside of the city, stoned him with stones, so that he died. And then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. And it came to pass, when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give to you for money. For Naboth is not alive, but he's dead. And so it was, when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, 
that he got up and went down and took possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. Then the Lord, while you're at it, you might want to underline that word, that phrase. Then the Lord, the word of the Lord, came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise and go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. And so Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring calamity on you. I will take away your posterity and will cut off from Ahab every male in Israel, both bond and free. I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebad, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger and made Israel to sin. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord also spoke, saying, The dogs shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was none like Ahab who sold himself to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. And he behaved very abominably in following idols, according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And so it was, when Ahab heard those words, that, notice again, he tore his clothes, and he put sackcloth on his body, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and went about mourning. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, See how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. In the days of his son, I will bring the calamity on his house. Pretty interesting, isn't it? You know, just this evil man, and, and yet there's a spark, there's a little an ember of, of humility, and God is willing to work with that. Never forget that. I, I just, I marvel at the grace of God. I marvel at the grace of God. And so, let's go back to verse 1 here. So, uh, after these things, and, and certainly this means that after God had uh, reprimanded Ahab through the prophet, and uh, because of his unwillingness to destroy Ben-Hadad, uh, while he had him under, under his control, after these things, after God's judgment was spoken to him, that he came to pass that Naboth, a Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel. Now, Jezreel is in the northern part of Israel, just uh, southwest uh, of the Sea of Galilee. But north of uh, Samaria, the capital city of the northern ten tribes. That the Samaria was the home of uh, Ahab. And just north and a little bit uh, west was this other place, his summer or winter residence perhaps, in Jezreel. It was right there in the valley of Armageddon. If you've been to Israel with us and you've been on Mount Carmel and you've looked down uh, at that, or Carmel, excuse me, Carmel, that's the way they say it in Penfield, Mount Carmel. 
but uh, in Israel they say Carmel. El means God, right? Okay, so, uh, so he's got this other house, this winter house up in Jezreel, right there on the edge of the plain of this valley of Armageddon, otherwise known as the Jezreel Valley. And so this is where it is all happening. And, and, and so Ahab wants to have the vineyard in verse 2 as a, a vegetable garden, uh, because it's near to him, evidently, um, this Ahab was down in Samaria, and he's aware that Naboth has this vineyard next to his summer home, or his winter home, and so he tries to make a deal with him, and he wanted it to be convenient, right next to his residence. I mean, a vineyard is the livelihood of most of these people, and, and Ahab, interestingly enough, it wants to have herbs and a little vegetable garden so he can have a nice salad with his steak at night, uh, whatever it is. But, um, but it sounds like, uh, it seems evident that Ahab wanted to possess the land for good and not give it up in the year of Jubilee. And we'll speak more of that in a minute because uh, it'll make sense uh, why there is this problem. Uh, but there's always a danger, isn't there, when somebody in authority, uh, in a position of authority, tries to use that authority for their own personal means. And, and we see this in the life of Ahab and Jezebel. They, they're using their authority uh, to, uh, for their own personal gain. And it's, it's something that everyone needs to be careful of uh, because really what was happening here is Ahab was coveting this man's property. You know, it's right next to his palace or his winter residence, and he's looking out over the edge, and he's going, wow, that's, that's really nice. It'd be really convenient for, uh, to build something here, and I can just go out and pick the cucumbers and all of those things. And So in, instead of just, wouldn't the nice thing to do just to go to him and say, hey, can I, um, can I pay you for some of the produce, or can we even take a little portion of it off, and, and I'll pay you, or... And, you know, maybe pay the men to bring in the, the fruits or the whatever, the, the vegetables. But he doesn't do that. He wants the whole thing. He wants the whole thing. And so he's coveting this man's thing. And we know that in Exodus, that covetousness is a sin, isn't it? I mean, didn't God tell uh, the Israelites in Exodus chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are given to us, that you shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's? And what does Colossians tell us? That covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness is wanting something so bad that you're willing to do anything to get it. And here's a really great example because he wanted it so bad. Actually, I think if his wife wasn't in the picture, he probably would have been safe. But there was enough evil in his heart and his wife had primed him and, and, and used him so much and her heart was to rule over him. And it became something that they would do anything to get, even if it meant killing a man. And such is the nature of man. You want something that bad, you're willing to do anything to get it, and that's what idolatry is. Covetousness is idolatry. And there's nothing wrong, and I've often thought about this, and maybe you have too, when you think about something that you enjoy and you really like, there's nothing wrong with enjoying things and liking things. Even liking things and taking care of those things. I mean, it's, it's a good thing not to let it become an idol to us, right? 
But there's nothing wrong with liking something and taking good care of it. That's stewardship. But it becomes a problem when I can't do, I'll do anything to keep that thing. In other words, my relationship with God can be jeopardized for this one thing, whatever it is. I'm not going to give it up. It's like this, it's like the ring with Gollum. You know, he's got the ring and it's as precious and, you know, and it's the thing, he's always got to know where it is. That's the way it was, and that's the way it can be with us too, and so it's always good to be careful. And that's why I love the Bible. I love the honesty of the Word of God, because it doesn't let us get off scot-free. It's through these things, God wrote, He allowed His Word to be written such that it would be for our nurture and our admonition. It's supposed to be our schoolmaster, our tutor, and every one of these attitudes that we see, they're written here because this is human nature. This is man at his best in his fallen nature. And yet God says, well, that's all fine and good. Actually, it's not fine and good. You need to be born again. And see, that's the whole process and the whole doctrine of redemption. That's what the Bible's all about. It's a book of redemption from beginning to end, from the law being lost in the garden to the salvation at the very end. It's, it's a book of redemption. And so it's wonderful to see ourselves in these characters and if you resemble any of these traits any of these things or maybe you have in in a certain time of your life maybe your thing was uh whatever bikes you know motorcycles cars uh, whatever it can, can be and it, those things can be an idol to you and maybe in a former life meaning several decades ago maybe you were one of those people we have to be careful that covetousness will turn to, because that's what it is, it's idolatry. But notice in verse 3, Naboth said to Ahab, I, I, Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my father. See, the property, Naboth's property doesn't only belong to him, but it belongs to his family, his tribe that he belongs to as an inheritance. Turn with me, if you would, to Leviticus chapter 25. Or if you want to, just write this reference off on the side of your Bible, and, and I'll read it to you. But we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 25. It's a, a you know, fairly lengthy passage, not, not too bad. We're going to look at beginning at verse 23. But in Leviticus chapter 25, beginning in verse 23, it says this. And this is the crux of the whole matter. This is why Naboth can't give the land, because evidently, Ahab wanted the land for his own and, and not to give it back to him. And we'll see why that is. Notice, the land shall not be sold permanently, the, the, the Lord says, for the land is mine. And you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the land of your possession, you shall grant redemption of the land. If one of your brethren becomes poor and has sold some of his possession, and if his redeeming relative comes to redeem it, then he may redeem what his brother sold. Or if the man has no one to redeem it, but he himself becomes able to redeem it, then let him count the years since its sale and restore the remainder to the man to whom he sold it, that he may return to his possession. But he, if, he, if he is not able to have it restored to himself, then what was sold shall remain in the hand of him who bought it until the year of Jubilee. That's a 50 years. And in the Jubilee it shall be released and it, he shall return to his possession. And so I'll just stop there. But the idea is, is in order to keep the land in the, in the specific tribes, they wouldn't sell land to other tribes. But what they would do is they would lease it. 
That's really what it is. You would lease land to somebody, but after 50 years of you farming that land and using the produce off of that land, you would also be paying rent. Uh, well, you, you, would, you would pay the owner of that land a certain amount of money for those, for those 50 years. And you'd farm the land and get all the increase of it. But at the end of those 50 years, the land would not go to the guy who leased it. It would go back to the guy who originally owned it. And that way God would keep the land and all of the different tribes, keep them in their places. All the land stays in the tribes. You follow me? And so really what it was was a lease. And so that's basically what... Naboth is saying, I, I can't give you my land. I, you're asking me for the land. I can't give it to you. And evidently, such was the case that Ahab wanted the, the entire land. He wanted to buy it outright or, or, or do a swap with him. And he's like, I can't do that. Then my kids, you know, it's got to come back to our tribe. And so, verse 4, he went to his house, sullen, meaning he was implacable, he was resentful, he was rebellious. That's literally what the word means in the original Hebrew. And, and he was also displeased, he was angry, he was full of rage because of the word which Naboth had said to him, saying, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And notice, he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would eat no food. This is what I call a royal pity party. This is what five-year-olds do when they're in Wegmans and you're going through the, 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 the line and there's candy on each side of the aisle and, and, and they try to reach for this and you tell them no and, they, and they, they, the bottom lip sticks out. And I can do it pretty good. Watch. You know, they, the bottom lip and they start getting red in the face and then they throw themselves down in aisle 10 and starts writhing like a demon-possessed child. And meanwhile, everybody's, you know, the people are coming, police officers, fire departments, trying to get this kid. I'm, I'm just kidding. But you, you've been in those situations, haven't you, when your kid goes crazy? Well, that's really what's happening here. A big, big pity party. I'm the king and all I want is a vineyard. This guy's not going to get it to me. And so he turns his face. He's, he's not even eating and he's just, he's being a brat. He's being a spoiled brat. That's really what it comes down to. Ah, but Jezebel, his wife, underline that. She swoops in on a rope at the right time. She swings in, da-da, and she's going to come to the rescue. She came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so sullen that you eat no food? And this phrase, but Jezebel, his wife, whenever you read that phrase, if you were in a dramatic play, the mood would change, the keys of the song would change from major to minor, instead of light there would be only darkness when her name is mentioned, and now she comes in, and, 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 uh, and so he, says, he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, give me your vineyard, or else if it please you, I'll give you another vineyard, or I'll pay you for it. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, verse 7, Now, you exercise authority over all Israel. Ahab, you are the king of Israel. And see, from Jezebel's perspective, because how she grew up in Ethbaal, her, her father, who was the king of, uh, of Sidon, up, up in that area, Tyre and Sidon, she grew up, no doubt, with her father, who was an idolater, and, and probably he just took what he wanted. There was no asking, there was no reasoning something out. If he just wanted it, he just took it. And that was what she grew up with. And now that she is the king's wife, she's thinking, grow up and be a man and just force yourself and take the land. 
because that's her nature. Just force yourself upon them and take it. Take it. You exercise authority over all Israel, Ahab. Arise and eat food and let your heart be cheerful. I will give it to you. Oh, I'm so glad. She swoops in on a, on a rope and comes in and saves the day. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. And basically what she was saying is the ends justify the means. You're the king. You should just do it. Take it for yourself. And here, Ahab, um, and especially Jezebel, again, they abuse their authority, their influence to obtain another man's property. And evil and wicked is the advice that Jezebel gives to her pouting husband. And notice she says, I will give you the vineyard. Underline that phrase too. Does that sound familiar to you? It does to me. The first thing that came into my mind was Isaiah chapter 14. The same spirit that's in Jezebel is the same spirit of Satan. Remember in Isaiah chapter 14. When God is speaking, and, and it's recorded for us in Isaiah 14, verses 12 through 15, what we call the five I wills. These are statements that Satan has said about God. In other words, uh, it, it, God brings an indictment against this leader behind the uh, Babylonian throne, which was Satan at the time. And, he, and God says through the prophet, How are you fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How are, how are you cut to the ground, you who weakened the nations for you have said in your heart and here it is I will ascend into heaven I will exalt my throne above the stars of God I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north I will ascend the height of the clouds I will be like the most high and I love God breaks in he says yet you shall be brought down to hell <laughs> you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit and yet, this is the exact same spirit that's governing this woman, Jezebel. Nobody calls their daughter Jezebel. Have you noticed that? Have you been to a, um, a gender reveal party or something like that? When you know, they, they do that, and then they name the child or something like that? You never hear Jezebel anymore. Here's why. Because she's governed by a different spirit. Nobody calls her son Judas either, uh, with good reason. But I love what Proverbs says, such a great instruction for us, one that we know very well. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And that's really what this is all about. Just, I will get that vineyard for you in my own strength. I'm going to do it for you. And notice verse 8, she wrote letters in Ahab's name. She sealed them with his seal and sent the letters to the elders and the nobles who were dwelling in the city with Naboth. The seal that she had was more than likely his signet ring, and that ring would be on his hand. She took the ring off his finger, she grabbed it, and, and what they would do in those days is they would take the ring and they would impress it upon, and, and there would be some kind of symbol on it, and they would impress it on whatever substrate it was, whether it was was uh, a papyrus or leather or whatever it was that they would use to uh, send something. And oftentimes they would take a, uh, write something on a scroll and roll it up and then put uh, wax on where, the, 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 where it meets the paper and then take the signet ring and squish it down on it and sealing the letter, thus making somewhat of an oath or a vow. This thing was a covenant. This thing was... Uh, legally binding, if anybody opened that other than the recipient, death was your decree. 
That's how serious it was. Think of it like a, a notary public today or, or, or getting something where you have to register it and sign it. So she wrote the letters, and notice she proclaimed a fast and set Naboth in high honor and set two men, scoundrels, before him. And whenever public fasting was pronounced, that usually meant that there was something not quite right. And so in order to make the, whatever wrong, to make it right, they would proclaim a fast and God would reveal who the problem was or what the problem was. And so she does this under this pretext of a fast. She brings in Naboth and she exalts him and then has two men come in. And I love just how biblical she is. She even uses the Jewish law to accomplish her filthy deed. Because cursing, and here was the thing, uh, because uh, before him, these two men came and they bore witness saying that you have blasphemed God and the king and that was worthy of death according to Exodus. You shall not revile God nor curse the ruler of your people. It goes on in Leviticus and says the same thing. You shall be put to death if you did this. So she's, she knows the Jewish law. And whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's why she sends two men and not just one. She knows the law, so she sends two men to come and offer this uh, false witness against this man who has done nothing. He's, nothing. He's an innocent man. And so the men of the cities, the elders who were inhabitants of the city, they did exactly what Jezebel said to them. So they're, they're just... Um, caving into her authority. And, and notice who is really in authority. Is it Ahab? Was he the one who initiated this? No, he was the one sulking against the wall, crying and kicking and screaming, and um, not able to be consoled with milk or cookies. It wasn't him who initiated this. It was her. It was her. He never stopped her or to correct her, but yet he was ultimately responsible because Ahab is accountable for letting this continue. And it's sort of like a vow in, in Numbers. You might want to just write this in the margin of your Bible. Numbers chapter 30, verse 6 through 15, because really this is what's happening here. Um, Numbers 30, verses 6 through 15. Here's really the essence of what's happening in Numbers it says, if indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself, and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears it, then her vows shall stand and her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears her, he shall make void her vow which she took and she uttered with her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. And also any vow of a widow or a divorce woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. And if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement or an oath and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding her, it shall not stand. 
stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will release her. And every vow and binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it, or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all the vows and all of her agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does not, but if he does, excuse me, make them void after he has heard them, then she shall bear her then he shall bear her guilt. So the idea is Ahab could have stopped her with this decree, basically. That's really what it was. It was like a, a binding oath, in a sense. It was a very significant letter, you know, set with a seal. And he did nothing. And so he is guilty, even though she is the one who actually uh, continued it. Both of them are guilty, but Ahab is not out of the woods because he heard it and he did nothing. He was probably too busy convulsively crying and running out of Kleenex to say anything to her. But a woman, as we've been looking at the role of of Jezebel, a, a woman ought not to supplant her husband, right? That's what the Bible says. Do you know when God has taken his hand off of a culture, There's some signs, and this is a little bit of a recap from a couple weeks ago. But whenever children, it says in Isaiah 3.12 that when children are their oppressors and women rule over them, that is a society that has left God and now God is no longer invited into. And, and, And we see that in our own culture now. And certainly it was happening here. But the man is to be the head over the wife and she is to be submitted to him. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, you remember that one of the pronouncing of judgments upon the woman, God judged the man, the, the, the serpent, Satan, and the man and the woman. And one of the things that he said to the woman, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm focusing on the woman because of Jezebel, but the man really messed up too. Adam did, okay? So we're all guilty in this. But when... God pronounced judgment upon the woman. He says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And, and the idea here is there's something within a, 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 a woman, if her husband is not fulfilling what God has given him to do, his mandate from God, if he's not willing to do it, his wife will gladly step up to the plate and do it and fulfill it. And we see that today as well. And so it really behooves us, guys, to live the way God wants us to live. And it behooves us to rise to the occasion and not abdicate our God-given role to our wives, but to let God fulfill his our, what he wants to do in us guys and let the, God fulfill his role in them because both of these roles that men and women have are so wonderful and they're so beautiful and when they're working rightly, boy, the marriage is popping and things are just, it's in order and God blesses it. And when it's out of order, there is nothing but chaos and strife and ultimately, hopefully not, but it happens all the time, even in the church, divorce, Hearts get hard. Men abdicating everything to their wives and their wives no longer feeling like they can. And and, and then because they know in their hearts and their pride they can do it better, they usurp the husband and and then continue in that and God is not blessing their home. And pretty soon the wife has got to work and the man stays home and takes care of the kids. The roles get completely reversed and we see that all the time. 
The husband is to be the head of the wife as Christ is the head over the man and over the church. It says in Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as also Christ is head of the church and he is the savior of the body. And therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. And then Paul will go on further and say, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp the authority over the man, but to be in silence. For Adam was first formed and then Eve. But see, a woman's role in the family, in the church, in society is extremely important. It's beautiful. But their roles are defined by God. And if they are truly, and if they are to be truly blessed and submit to their God-given roles, their houses will be a peaceful, safe haven. It will, it'll be a safe haven rather than a battleground and a place of strife. You know, and I think of all the, uh, over the years, I've seen all the sitcoms of a man and a woman, and most of them, the man, the, the, the sitcoms, the TVs, the movies, they make the man to look like some kind of fool. They make him look like this poor guy who just doesn't have it together. He's got no smarts. He just sits around, you know, with a white T-shirt that's stained, drinking beer and barking out commands. You know, this, this kind of stigma or this caricature of a man has been totally monopolized and made men look totally crazy. making them look lazy and unintelligent and womanizing and have aim, having amoral characters. But she was a woman who was in charge, Jezebel. While her husband is crying and laying in the fetal position on the bed against the wall, she grabs the bull by the reins. She's now in charge, and she'll step up to anyone who would get in her way. If she were alive today, she'd be running for governor of New York, if she were alive today, she'd be running for governor of California. If she were alive today, she might even be in the White House, Jezebel. So ladies, your God-given role is precious, and we need you now more than ever. We need you now more than ever. I'm not saying any of you are Jezebels. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm just saying that when things get out of order, then, then, you know, these things happen all the time. If the husband's not doing it, a woman will gladly fill that role. And sometimes it's not her fault. I mean, she's got something that, that's in her that will, will do that if that void is open. But ladies, resist the temptation. Pray for your husband. If he's not doing what God wants him to do, pray for him. Exhibit faith and pray for your husband and serve him and bless him and God will bless you, and eventually, God's going to get him. It's not easy, but there's only one way to do it. You can't do it through henpecking. You can't do it through yelling at him and withholding from him. If you do that, it's, it, you're, you're, you're going to go further down the drain, your marriage. It always happens that way. But if you're willing to tough it out, and say, you know what, my husband's not doing what he should be doing, and I'm doing everything, it seems. Certainly have the talks. You don't have to raise your voice. Be honest. Get into the Word together. The Word of God will convict him. You don't need to say much. He knows what he should be doing. But Jezebel takes the reins. Takes the reins. 
So they proclaimed a fast. They seated Naboth with high honor among the people. And these scoundrels come and they, they say that he had blasphemed God. And they took him outside the city and they stoned him and, and he died. And, and, um, and then Jezebel, they, they went to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned. It's, it's, the dirty deed has been successful. Now it's time to uh, rejoice. And so, and it came to pass when Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, that she went to Ahab and, you know, says, arise and, you know, take possession of the vineyard now. But even in killing him, the property should have gone to the next of kin. But Ahab and Jezebel swoop in like vultures to eat the carrion that's left, meaning Naboth's vineyard. They take possession of it. It, it should have been going to his family, his next of kin. Anyway. And so it was when Ahab heard that Naboth was dead that he got up off his bed, wiped off his eyes. I'm sure it's all red and puffy from crying against the wall. Sorry, I'm, I'm having a little bit of fun with, Nate, with Ahab, okay? I know you're, you're enjoying it too. I can, I can tell as I look out. Um, <laughs> so then the word of the Lord, so he goes down to take possession of the vineyard. Then the word of the Lord comes to Elijah and uh, the Tishbite. saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, he who lives in Samaria. There he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall go down to him, saying, Have you murdered, and also take possession? And, and you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your blood, even yours. And so Ahab and Jezebel, they're, they're guilty of murder, they're guilty of stealing. But notice that God comes to him, the head of the house, first. He doesn't come to Jezebel. You notice that? Same thing he did with Adam and Eve. When, Adam, when, when Eve took of the fruit that God told them not to do, did God approach Eve first? No, he went to Adam. He says, Adam, where are you? Well, God, you know where I'm at. No, I do, but I want you to acknowledge it. Where are you? I, don't have, no, I have no clue where I'm at. He came, to, he came to the man first. They're guilty. And we will see this prophecy in verse 19 of, of, in the place where the dogs lick the blood of Naboth, the dog shall lick uh, Ahab's blood. We will see this literally come to pass later on in the last chapter, which is in, like next week, we'll, we'll begin to see this. And Ahab, excuse me, will be killed in battle. And we will see that as well, and, and this prophecy will come to pass. So verse 20, it says, So Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? And he says, I found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And the truth of the matter is, Elijah was his, the, the best man that he ever had. Elijah was one of the best men that Ahab could ever hope to have because he told him the truth and he would give him the truth. And he, he, he was sent by God to hopefully bring this man to repentance and see, enemies seek your harm and your destruction, but God, through Elijah, was seeking to get Ahab to reconsider his ways and to live and have a prosperous life. That was God's design. It wasn't just to come deliver the death blow and say you're condemned and there's nothing you can do about it. Uh, you know, if, if, if Ahab would have said, you know, broke like an egg and said, Lord, I, have, I, have, I'm comp uh, I, need, I need you, Lord. Would you please forgive me? God would have done even more, I believe. Elijah was not his enemy. He was certainly the best friend that Ahab ever had. 
And he says, I have found you. You've sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. The idea is to uh, make yourself merchandise. You're selling yourself to do something. You're making yourself merchandise. You're selling yourself. Behold, I'll bring calamity on you. I'll take away your posterity and cut off Ahab from every male in Israel, both bond and free. And I'll make your house like the houses of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he goes on and he speaks of these other kings, which we have read previously. And we're going to see these judgments that God is going to now bring upon Ahab literally come to pass. And we're going to see it not at, and we're going to see it next week beginning to happen, but it's ultimately going to come to its fruition in 2 Kings 9 through chapter 10, verse 17, I think. We're going to see Yehu, this king who is going to replace Ahab. He's going to come, and he's going to kill all of Ahab's sons, all of his relatives, all the males. And, um, and Elisha, in 2 Kings chapter 9, he sends one of the prophets to anoint Yehu and, and basically tells him his marching orders. This is what you're to do. You're to go and strike down the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all of his servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. This is what God is telling the prophet to tell Yehu to do because God is going to fulfill that prophecy. He's going to take care of business because of Ahab's unwillingness to obey. He was supposed to kill Ben-Hadad when he had him in his hands, but instead he makes a deal with him and lets him go. Do you remember another king who did that? The Saul ring a bell with King Agag. He was supposed to kill him as well. And he didn't. And Samuel had to come in and take care of that business for him. And it was around that time God said, I repent that I made you king. Of course, God knew what he was doing, but he gave Saul a chance. And so now, um, Yehu gets this uh, message from God through a prophet whom Elisha sends, or Elijah sends. Cut off Ahab and all of his posterity, all of his family, all of the males, and the dog shall eat Jezebel and the plot of ground, and there shall be none to bury her. And all of this would literally be fulfilled in Second Kings chapter nine as well, verses thirty, um, or actually verses nine through ten, uh, chapter ten through the end of verse seventeen. You'll see all of these things come to pass. And concerning Jezebel, the Lord doesn't let her off the hook either. The dog shall eat Jezebel by the wall of Jezreel. And we see that in 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 30 through 37. And the dog shall eat whoever belongs to Ahab and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field. But there was no one ever like Ahab who sold himself. There's the same word again. He made himself merchandise and uh, to do wickedness in the sight of the Lord because... Circle that word, underline this phrase, because Jezebel, his wife, stirred him up. Now, this makes it pretty clear that Jezebel was a major instigator in the cause of Ahab's sin. Now, he was a sinner, and he was probably going to sin anyway, but his wife really stirred him up, and so God held her accountable. And she was a great catalyst in causing him to go even further down into that ugly pit and he behaved very abominably in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done, whom the Lord did cast out before Israel. And so it was when Ahab heard those words. Notice again, verse 27. 
And this is a, a really interesting uh, phrase again. When Ahab heard those things, he tore his clothes and he put sackcloth on his body, which is a, 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 a sign of mourning. All throughout the Bible, whenever somebody would do that, when they would tear their clothes and wear sackcloth and fast and, and he went about mourning, that, that Ahab was affected by the hearing of the word of God. Isn't that amazing? The light hadn't gone out on him completely. God you know, had pronounced judgment upon Jezebel, and there was no turning back from that. But the Lord tells Ahab that you, this is what's going to happen. And then Ahab's response just touches the heart of God. Again, a bruised reed he shall not break, and a smoking flax he won't quench. Don't forget that. Because maybe when you've made a mistake, maybe when you've committed some sin, maybe some habitual sin, and you're struggling, remember that. Come back to the Lord and confess. And have him cleanse you. Confess it, and he's faithful, right? That if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We will remember that sin, perhaps, but God has put it under the blood of Christ, and he willfully forgets it because of the blood of Christ. So Ahab was affected by hearing the word of the Lord when it was concerning his correction and the judgment that was going to be coming upon him. And although he was an idolater and an evil man, he, there was some humility in him. I love what it says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, and God says to Ezekiel the prophet, he says, As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And we have to remember that as well. But that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? That was God's pleading with them before he would finally lead them or allow them to be led into captivity. But that's his heart. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But there was hope for Ahab. There was something in there. Because disobedience and unbelief, they have consequences, don't they? Even for the child of God, disobedience and unbelief has consequences. Just because we, we are called by the name of the Lord, we're, just because we're born-again believers and, and we step out in disobedience, God's going to chasten us. And he does that because he loves us. If he didn't chasten me, then I, I would be like a bastard son. I'd, I'd know that he didn't care for me. But if you truly love someone, when you see them going toward the danger, everything in your being, and you know this, as if you have kids or anything, or grandkids, you're just like a, everything within you, you're trying to not hover. You're trying not to hover and be a mother hen or a father hen, you know, and you're, you're just, you're, you care so deeply because you love so much. And God made us that way. But disobedience and unbelief, they have consequences even for the believer. God will chasten us. In Galatians, Paul said, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. And even though we see this humility in Ahab, God's still going to bring judgment upon him. 
but he doesn't do it. Notice what it says. And the, and the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, uh, and so God speaks to Elijah. He says, see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Do you see that, Elijah? And I, and I think he's saying that to us tonight. Do you see that? Don't forget that. Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the calamity in his days. Didn't he do that to King Hezekiah too? One of the good kings? He says, I'm not going to bring this judgment upon you in your, in your life, but after you. Didn't he say that to Solomon as well? Even though Solomon made some really bad mistakes. Solomon, I'm not going to do this in your time, but when you're gone, I'm going to do it in your son. But God is gracious to the broken and humble, isn't he? And that, to me, that's one of the things. Not only the obvious, uh, and we'll just end with this here, not only Jezebel and her character, which none of you ladies should want to exemplify in any means, but stay away from it completely. We also, guys, need to look at, and, and gals, we need to look at this humility. And let God break you, often. You know, I love what it says in Psalm 51 during David's adulterous affair with Bathsheba. David would say, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. And that's what God saw in Ahab. He says, I'm not going to do this now, but I'm going to do it in your son's life. You're going to pay the price, Ahab, but all of these things I'm going to do after you're gone. For thus says the Lord, Isaiah says in Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him who has a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. In Isaiah 66, verse 2, finally, and we'll end here. Isaiah says, the Lord speaks through Isaiah, saying, For all these, those things my hand is made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. I love that verse, you know. Learn to tremble at God's word. Don't push it away from you, but when you hear it, act upon it. Let it change you. And see, that's what I saw in Ahab. Even though he didn't fully repent, there was something there that God is willing to work with. And his judgment could have been so much worse. He could have been like um, Zedekiah, who was taken captive to Babylon. And, and, and before they took out his eyes, before they put them out, they, he, they killed his sons right before his eyes. And the last thing he saw was his kids being put to death. And then they plucked out his eyes, or they put out his eyes. But God says, no, I'm going to wait. Because I see something there. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't he a fair and just God? Never forget that either. He's a fair and just God. Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, this passage. And Lord, for the obvious um, lessons here for for women and for men, and Lord, for all of us, Lord, to be, uh, to be broken and contrite and to know that, Lord, when we are, you're not going to cast us away, Lord, that whatever could be coming our way is, 
Lord, more often softened because of our heart's attitude. Lord, may we all, even when we are in our grossest of sin or even when we have made some really horrible things, mistakes, even as believers, Lord, help us to come to you quickly, confess and be broken and and to mourn over our sin and to have you cleanse us and heal us and restore us. And, and there may be consequences for that, God, but I know that you lessen those things when we are humble and contrite, as we've seen in the life of Ahab, in a small way. And so, Lord, thank you for this passage. Thank you for tonight. And I pray that you'd bless my brothers and sisters. Lord, that you would encourage them in all of our troubles, all of our struggles that we go through. Lord, would you just be God over all, Be God over all, Heavenly Father, and take us by the hand, your children, myself included. So thankful for you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.